Second Peter is where we start this morning. If you have your Bibles, get them out. Second Peter, all the way toward the end of the New Testament, heading that direction. And if you need a Bible, just put your hand up nice and high, and we'll bring Bibles around to you. One down here, Eddie. Second Peter. It's going to be strange being in an epistle or a letter, having been in the Gospel of John for, I don't know how long, maybe a year and a half or so we were in John. So this is going to be very different, different kind of writing. Let's pray. Lord, here we are again, uh, week after week, uh, coming to, to be together. The church, Lord, the ones that have been called out, called out from among the world. Lord, we know that we're in the world but we are called not to be of the world. We are of Christ. And Lord, here we are, recognizing our need for you, our need for each other, having been baptized into the body of Christ, becoming part of the family of God, the household of faith. And Lord, we just acknowledge you as the head of everything, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the heir of all things, How good you are, Lord, how loving your your unconditional love to us is is truly remarkable. Your forgiveness is undeserved. And yet, Lord, what a a God we have. It's hard to imagine, hard to to fathom, hard to to recognize all the things that you've done for us, Lord. So this morning we just come with hearts of gratitude, Lord, for the things that we, we know and the things that we haven't even understood that you've been part of in our lives, the things we thought we were doing while behind it all you were there. And asking you to open our minds to understand the things that you've given us, what we are, who we are in Christ. Open your word to us so we can see wondrous things. It's in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. Now, some of you saw me making my way down to the stage during greeting time, and I have extreme contraband here in the sanctuary. I, I don't know if you guys can see this or not. But we're looking at the letter of, of Second Peter, his second letter. We have First Peter and Second Peter, two letters that he wrote to the church. Specifically, the second one is what we would call a general epistle. It's not written to a specific church, like Galatians is written to the church in Galatia and Colossians. Those are all letters that were written specifically to a church and then meant to be shared. But Peter's uh, second epistle, second, an epistle for those of you that may not know that, it's just, it's not like a synonym for apostle. It's a letter. Epistle just means a letter. So Peter, seeing some things that were going on in, in the church, said, I need to address these things. And I'm going to write that, you know, he couldn't send an email or a fax or, you know, put a Facebook post up. So he did that old-style communication form called writing a letter. Any of you guys write letters anymore? Don't you love to receive a letter? Isn't there still something special about receiving a handwritten letter? I think so. I try to write cards when I can, but uh, it's, a, it's getting to be a lost art form. But that's what an epistle is. And we've titled the study, To Stir You Up. And that's why Peter wrote, we'll get into a little more details about why he wrote, but ultimately, uh, twice in his letter, in in chapter 1 and then in chapter 3, he says, I'm writing because I want to stir you up. And so I just thought I'd bring, I like to connect, I like to connect your, your, your mind via what you see and what you hear. So how many of you guys grew up, or maybe still drink a lot of chocolate milk? I mean, now they mix it for you. What's, where's the fun in that? right? It's, you get it in the carton and it's already mixed. And, but when we were growing up, this is what we did. It's like you have to measure how much chocolate, you know, it was like half. You just, the chocolate would pile up, but it just sits there on the bottom. It's there. But that's, uh, would you call that chocolate milk? I'd call it a layer of milk and a layer of chocolate. It's not chocolate milk until what happens? You got to stir it up, right? And so I'm being very careful here. And uh, I'm going to put this aside but when you stir it up it gets all mixed in there and i do this illustration because peter's not trying he, what he's trying to do is to stir up what your mind because so much of what we i want to drink this so bad but i think that'd be rude i didn't bring enough for everybody 
I think so much of the world, both in the ancient world and even today, um, is spent on amusement. To muse is to think. And therefore, a, the, the prefix a means without. And muse means to think. So amusement is what? Without thinking. And you know how, I mean, I know how you feel. There's days when I get home at the, at the end of the day or the weekend comes like, I don't want to think about anything. I'm just going to cut the TV on and zone out. What do you want to do tonight? I just want to veg. I want to shut my brain off. I don't want to have to think. I don't want to have to, I just want to check out. And I think so much of, of what we experience uh, in our world, especially in America, is meant to say to you, amen, veg out, don't think. Don't think about your, your Christian faith. Don't think about what's you know, going wrong in the world. Don't think about this. Don't think about that. Just sit back and enjoy the ride. I don't think, you know, again, I'm, I'm, this is a stereotypical opinion maybe, but I think even in schools, I'm not sure we teach kids to think anymore. I think we teach kids to memorize. I think a good school and a good teacher teaches their students to think and isn't afraid of having things challenged and isn't afraid of bringing in information that, that may disagree with, with what you've learned. Uh, that's why we do Q&A here on Sunday nights. I'm not afraid. The gospel, God, is not afraid of your questions. I long to hear people ask good questions because I know that the word of God has good answers. So I'm not afraid of that. And so Peter is writing this letter and, and as we go through, we'll see this, but just by way of introduction, there's a couple things that are going on. Number one, it's written in about 65 or 66 A.D. The church is only about 30 years old. Very, the church is in its infancy. Peter knows and, that he is, uh, is, his days are numbered. He's, on, he's, he's about to die. Uh, we know from church history uh, that what Jesus said in, in, the, in John 21 comes true, Peter uh, does end up being uh, killed, crucified, upside down, according to church history, for his faith. And so he, whatever's going on, he recognizes under the persecution of Nero, Emperor Nero, uh, he took the throne in around 54 AD, I think, and so the persecution has been getting worse and worse. It's, it's illegal to be a Christian at that time, and uh, Peter knows he's about to die. And he's not worried about where he's going. He's worried about the faith of the people that he leaves behind. And so he writes so that, so that the people can have a constant reminder of the things they've been taught and to stir you up to keep... Because sometimes we settle, don't we, in our Christian lives? We just we settle in. We forget things that we've learned. I love hearing a compelling speaker, someone who stirs me up, someone who reminds me of things I know but does it in such a way that it gets me... I can, get, can you get stirred up? I can get stirred up about some things. I hear, so, oh man, that stirs me up. And I needed that, and you need that. And Peter knew that the people he was writing to needed to be stirred up. Why? Because during that time, not only was there persecution, but there was a lot of false teaching. People don't counterfeit something that's non-existent. You don't counterfeit a $3 bill. Imagine going to the store and trying to spend a $3 bill. They would know right away, or trying to, to, to take it and, and use it somewhere, they would know right away that it was a counterfeit. Why? Because there's no such thing as a $3 bill. You don't counterfeit what's false, you counterfeit what's real. And because Jesus Christ is real, his teachings are real, his life is real, then there were those that would counterfeit it, or try to challenge it or oppose it. So, so much of the New Testament was written to make sure they had a, they, that the early church knew what was right and what was wrong. And we see the church there today, don't we? I think we see the church there today. As many turn away from the word of God and begin to adopt, well, what, what feels good or what feels right, this is what was happening in the days of Second Peter. He's trying to tell them, no, no, there were, there were teachers that were saying, hey, if it feels good, then it must be good. Then do it. That doesn't really matter. You're saved by grace. And if we're saved by grace, then how you live, it doesn't really matter. And so Peter is challenging some of these false teachers. And, and, because the danger of false teaching is false living. You're going to live according to what you believe. 
And so, I mean, these are people's lives that are at stake. This is their future. This is their family. This is their purity. This is all of these things that are at stake. And so Peter says, the last thing I want to do is I want to leave this letter so that people can read it over and over again in the church and they can be reminded and stirred up about what's right. And so chapter 1, if you like to, to take notes, I just call chapter 1 Knowing and Growing. Knowing and growing. We're not going to do all of chapter 1 today. If I don't get through my introduction, we might not do any of chapter 1. Knowing and growing is the first chapter. We'll see just in the first chapter alone, Peter uses the word knowing eight times. Just in the first chapter. So for Peter, knowledge and knowledge of God is the absolute key. And how do we know God? Through the certainty of his word. That's what chapter 1 has to do. That has to do with chapter 2 deals with the false teachers and the emptiness and their tactics and their, the way that they operate all in chapter 2 is exposed. And then chapter 3 uh, deals with the fact of the, the second coming of Christ. So that's kind of the, the letter in a nutshell. I think we can go ahead and get started with that brief introduction. Chapter 1, if you're all there now, uh, verse 1 begins with, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. The, the way letters were written in those days, uh, we sign our letters last. We write the letter and then we sign it. In those days, they would actually sign it first. It was on a scroll, not a, a stapled together pieces of paper. So they would sign it first so they knew right away who this letter was from. And, and so the, the author of this is clearly Simon Peter, uh, Simon being his original name, Peter being the name that Jesus gave him. Peter means a stone. And, and then he identifies himself. And that's what, when you sign a letter, you're identifying yourself. And so how does he identify himself? Well, this is interesting to me, and it always is interesting to me, because I think we, all of us, hum, humanly speaking, we struggle with our identity. I think kids struggle with our identity. I think adults struggle with our identity. I think we have identity crises. I think uh, I remember seeing a cartoon a while ago. It was a one-frame cartoon. This man was uh, sitting in his easy chair, and he's smoking a cigarette, and he's got a beer next to him, and his, his gut is hanging out, and he's got the remote. I mean, just this, this picture is painted by this cartoonist. And uh, his wife answers the door, and there's a guy at the door, and, and he's handing her something. And he, she says, she turns to her husband and says, Honey, this guy says he stole your identity. He's here to return it. <laughs> I thought that was so creative. I just like that. But this is what we do when we meet each other, right? We're trying to identify each other. And, and tell me if, I mean, this is, I think you guys will agree with this. Our, our attempt always is to identify ourselves so that people are, are elevating us. We, we, we always kind of present the best thing about us because we want people to go, ooh, when they meet us, right? Ooh, you, you did what? You have what kind of degree? Ooh, Wow. That's impressive. But Peter could have said a number of things. He could have said, Simon Peter, the only apostle to have walked on water. I mean, yeah, I sank, but let's not talk about that. Yeah, the only apostle to have walked on water. Peter, Simon Peter, the apostle whom Jesus said, feed my sheep. A number of things could have Peter, uh, Peter could have said, but what does he say? He identifies himself very simply. He, he didn't say the Pope either, by the way. He didn't say Simon Peter, the Pope. He said a bondservant. A bondservant. First place he, first way he defines himself. And, and that's just a fancy word for slave. Now the Roman Empire was very familiar with slaves. I think I've heard there were about 3 million slaves in the Roman Empire. And when we say the word slave, we recognize in America there's a huge negative connotation to that. And I, and I agree with that. It was a terribly handled. Biblically, it, it, there was a number of reasons you would become a slave. Uh, which I'm not going to go into this morning, but the point is, is, is a slave is a person whose will is consumed by the will of another. A slave doesn't have their own will. A, sl a slave does whatever their master wants them to do. Now, biblically, there were, now, please recognize this. In biblical times, there were a lot of benefits to being a slave in the house of a good master. So much so that you would be, if you were a Jewish slave, you could only be a slave for six years, and then you'd have to be released. But some of the slaves would say, I don't want to be released. I like working for you. 
You treat me good. You treat my family good. And I want to stay for life. And then they would take your ear. Your master would take your ear over to the, to the doorpost. And they would put an awl uh, through your ear. And you'd have an earring. You'd, be, you'd have a pierced ear. And that was a sign then that you were then a lifetime slave for your master. And when you're a slave, everything you own belongs to your master. Everything you make, if you have any children, they all belong to the master. And I think that is just a stupendous picture for what we are in Jesus Christ. And when when you say, John MacArthur was interviewed one time and said, if you can break the Christian life down into the simplest terms, how, how would you say it? What would you say is the key one sentence for being a Christian? And he said three words, Jesus is Lord. And to be Lord is to be master. And if I make Jesus my Lord, and he's a good master, that's the thing. We're not talking about some guy who's going to be hard on you and spiteful towards you. We're talking about a master who loves you and cares deeply for you. When you were a slave in in Rome, you were like a tool, and your master could toss you out like a... He had the right, I think, if I remember correctly, he even had the right to kill you if he wanted to. You were disposable. So they knew what bad masters were like, but God uh, is not a bad master. Jesus is a very good master. Matter of fact, it's that master that sets you free, and you go, I don't want to be free. I, I want everything I have to be yours. I want my children to be yours. I want everything that I produce to all be yours. And I'll tell you what. Being, this is a, a lot of ambitions in life, a lot of frustration with life, because so many people, they want to be, I want to be this, I want to be that, I want to elevate myself, I want to, it's so, life is so simple when you say, I just want to be a bond servant, I want to be a slave of Jesus Christ. Whatever he tells me to do, that's what I want to do. And a slave is, a slave's happiness is found in pleasing his master. You know how that feels, right? Maybe some of the students in here, remember when you do a paper and your teacher goes, that was great. That is an awesome paper. Oh, I had a teacher like that. Have you ever had a teacher like that? You just wanted to please that teacher? You just liked that teacher so much. They were so good to you. So I just want to please them. That's how it is to be. Uh, that's the way it can be for you to be a Christian. Not a, not a heavy burden kind of thing, but man, I am so, if I know, in Nehemiah it said like this, the joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy of the Lord When I know my life is bringing him joy, that gives me strength. That gives me hope. What I'm doing is is giving joy to the Lord. Man, and that's what Peter defines himself. He identifies himself as a bondservant. How do you identify yourself when you talk to people? What's the first thing you talk about? Are you tempted to embellish, to, to make yourself appear great? What's your Facebook page say? That's where we put all of our great stuff. We identify ourselves by all this great stuff we do. Peter's content. He's got no identity issues whatsoever. He's not having a midlife crisis, and he's about to die. And he has no problem. And I think maybe the older you get, the more settled you get in who you are. You know what? On my graves, here, here, a bond servant of Jesus Christ. He just served the Lord. No more, no less. The Lord knows what, what else to be added there. And... An apostle of Jesus Christ. Jesus had sent them out. That's what an apostle means. Just one who is sent out. So that's the introduction from Peter. Now who's he writing to? He's not writing to unbelievers. Quite the opposite. He's writing to believers. To those who have obtained like precious faith with us. By the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. So he's writing to those that share in the same faith as Peter does. Which is interesting because Peter doesn't say, well, you guys have come along later, so you're second-class believers. He just includes, all, we're all wrapped up in one big family. There's no second-class Christians. There's no uh, second-class children in the family of God. We all have the same, the same standing. And, and so he recognizes that we, we have the same, he calls it precious. And a lot of people make note, Peter likes to use that word, Precious. And this, you think of this big, burly fisherman saying the word, isn't that precious? This, don't, this is a hard picture to think about. One more thing before we move on to verse 2. He recognizes here that uh, he says, the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He recognizes, just like Thomas did, my Lord and my God, Thomas said of Jesus. And Jesus didn't say, oh, no, no, don't call me God. 
Here, Peter does the same thing. Those two words are both connected. Our God and Savior are both connected to Jesus Christ. Peter says, Jesus is my God. And that's not, um, that, that's not having multiple gods. That's, that's not polytheism because of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, all one God. You can talk about that on the way home. Verse 2. So he gives them, a, now part of their letter writing, he introduces himself, who's he, who's he writing to, the audience, and now he, he asks for a blessing on them. He says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. As a run-on sentence, so that's why I wanted to read the whole thing, but he says, grace and peace be multiplied to you. Grace is, is just the free gifts of God, the free gift of God, and, and peace is, would have been the Hebrew greeting, shalom, uh, so he says these two things. And how are grace and peace multiplied? I like God's mathematics, not just added to you, but multiplied, abounding more and more. Is that your experience? Do you find in your life that grace and peace are being multiplied to you? I find that in these days, I think fear is being multiplied. I mean, and, and some of it's rational. A lot of it's irrational. Because we have this media effect, because the media focuses on certain things, we think this is a lot bigger than it is. Now, Ebola is a big deal. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that's a small deal. It's a big deal. But there's a lot of fear. And I see here Peter saying, hey, grace and peace be multiplied to you. How? What's it say right there? In the knowledge of God. Anything. Any growth you're going to have, any peace you're going to have, it all comes from the knowledge of God. You've got to know Him. Not just know about Him. We know the difference between those things. To know someone, to really know... I mean, I've been married 19 years. I'm still getting to know my wife. We've spent a lot of time together. I know her much better now than I did when we first met. And in some ways, she might disagree with me on that. The woman is an enigma, I will agree. Not just my woman, all women, I'll say that, to us guys. But then the ladies are going, yep, and you guys ain't much better. And this word knowledge that Peter uses, it's an interesting word. The standard word for knowledge in Greek is, is pronounced gnosis. Uh, but this is super knowledge, it's epignosis, which um, means that it's a, uh, a knowledge that is experientially based. It's a contact knowledge. And at some point, and, and this is the thing, in your Christian life, just hearing sermons and just reading books isn't enough. You have to experience. Look, we don't base our faith on experience, but experience ought to follow our faith. And you'll never have it unless you, unless you put to work what God says in his word. And then you have experiential knowledge of God. That not, you can't inherit it from somebody else. It's wonderful when someone else tells you. You know how that works. It's one thing to hear about it from somebody else. Don't touch that stove. It's hot. But then when you experience that, that's a different kind of knowledge, isn't it? That's a knowledge. See, epignosis is knowledge that stays with you. Because you've experienced it in a different way. You've got sensory input there. And so that's the kind of knowledge where I have tried this and I've seen how God has worked and now I know. This is why trials are so good. Some of you that have been through some trials, you now know the faithfulness of God in a way you never knew before. And some of you are in the process of learning that. That's what James said, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Why? Because the testing of your faith produces patience. Something's happening and that, that you won't forget. So this is the kind of knowledge, this intimate knowledge of God, by spending time with him, by walking with him, by getting to know him. That will, and when you get there, when you're there, when you're living that life, 
grace and peace are multiplied to you in that knowledge. It's great stuff. If Jesus, our Lord, and his, verse 3, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That is great. God says, I'm going to give you what money can't buy. And now remember, the, the backstory on this is chapter 2, the false teachers who are making a lot of, of promises. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But God said, Peter says that there's a divine power. And we live in, in the last days, Paul talked to Timothy about this, where people will have a form of godliness. They'll go to church, maybe carry a Bible. They'll dress up. They'll talk about church. They'll even call their, their, their place they meet church. But it's not church. You can put the name, any name you want in a building. Church just means a gathering. People that are called out to gather together. People have a form of godliness. But what will they deny? The power. God, can't, God doesn't have the power to change me. God doesn't have the power to change. We just get together and we do good things for our community. And if that's your view of Christianity, it is so low. There is a divine, if there is not a divine power, then Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead. Because it's that same resurrection power that is available to you and to me. It's life changing. And it's his divine power, not your power. It's not fake it till you make it. You won't make it. You'll just get frustrated and, and check out. You cannot fake your way through the Christian life. You can try, but it is very frustrating and very difficult to try in your own power to do what those who are saved are doing by the power of God. Because you look at them and you go, well, look at the way their life's changed. I, I mean, I don't really want God, but I want that kind of life. So I'm going to try to have that kind of life, but without God, without actually making him my Lord. I'm going to just do, I'm going to imitate that. But it doesn't last. You need to be born again. You need the divine power of God. That it's, it doesn't cost you anything. It's free. This is the whole thing, folks. What God has for you, you will spend oodles and oodles of money on all kinds of stuff in the world that you think will bring you life. That you think, well, if we only lived here, if we only had that, then I'd, we'd be living. We'd be living the dream. Or we'd be living large. And yet why do we keep believing that when time after time we see that material possessions never equate with happiness? We know it, folks. Peter knows that they know it. And the false teachers are doing just that. They're alluring them through the lusts of the flesh. Oh, you can have this. You can have that. You can, still, you can be a, a Christian and you can do this. You can have your cake and eat it too. And they're empty promises. Let's read on. His divine power has given to us all things. See, there are people out there that say, well, if you're a Christian, you're missing out on some stuff. I mean, we, we got some drugs, and you need to have this. Or we got some this, or we got some of that, and you need what we got because we're living. They're lying to you. They're li that stuff leads to destruction, but here's the problem. Misery loves company. And... And they'll tell you, oh, you're, you're so missing out. We were at this party, and oh, man, I got so drunk, and we had a great time. And they'd leave out the part about the next morning. Or about what happened while they were drunk that they can't remember. But misery loves company. And if they can get you to do it, then they stop feeling so guilty about it. Don't let anybody tell you that you're missing out on anything by being a Christian. My life, you know, in fact, it's the opposite. I don't need alcohol to have a good time. I don't need drugs to have a spiritual experience. What can be better than what God has for us? He has given us acceptance. He has given us unconditional love. He has given us forgiveness. All of these things that relate to me living a godly life are all given to me. It's wonderful. Everything that I need to live, God has given me. And that's not just an, that's, that's the, the, to live a, spirit, a spiritual life. How, how do we have those things? Through the knowledge of him. That's how I, that's how I have all that stuff. Because I, I, I know him. 
I'm, I'm connected to him. Through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and vir- virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. Now, Phil's going to help me in, in the back here. We have a couple illustrations here to show you. Because we live in a world where there's a lot of empty promises, aren't there? I mean, the advertising industry, we, on, on Wednesday night, we're in Hebrews. And Hebrews chapter 2 talks about people that have been in, been in bondage all their life because of the fear of death. And you know the advertisers take advantage of the fact that you are afraid of death. And this has got fiber. And if you have fiber, you'll, you'll have a good heart and you won't die from a heart attack. And this has got, you know, now you've got to drink this pomegranate juice. Because it's red and expensive and it's healthy. And we'll take your word for it. And you've got to drink this, you've got to juice that. And I'm, I'm, look, I'm not a, I'm, I'm, I try to live a healthy life too. But not because I'm afraid of death. Because I want to be healthy. I've got a choice of what I'm going to put into my body. I want to put in things that enable me to have a clear mind and serve the Lord with my fullest potential. So when I, when, you know, I'm not opposed to eating healthy, but a lot of the, the advertisers play on, on your fears. And the promises we find out are so empty. So much stuff is airbrushed and all that. So we, we pulled up. Are they up there, Phil? Here's some promises. There's the, the slide and splash whale pool. There's what it really looks like. <laughs> there's your burger king whopper the advertisement (laughs) the real deal oh there's you could say at the hyatt there right look at the proximity (laughs) oh honey look how close it is yeah (laughs) you better bring and pack your walking shoes if you're staying there oh now who loves a good buffet now, that, you see that picture. Oh, that looks like an awesome buffet. <laughs> there it is. Oh, we love the beach. And how many of you have been to the beach? And you go, we, we just want to find a secluded beach where there's no crowds. And you know, we always look for the, the place where there's more seclusion. Don't have to fight the crowds. Well, you better think again. Is that the last one, Phil? There are a lot of empty promises out there. And the false teachers that Peter is combating that are in and around the church, that's exactly what they're doing. They're making these great and swelling promises, but they just leave people empty and frustrated. And Peter says, you don't have to look to them. You've got exceedingly great and precious promises from God. That through these, and what could be better, what the best promise, I mean, there's all kinds of promises of eternal life and all the things we've we've talked about, acceptance and forgiveness and and power and grace and gifts and all these things that God has promised you. That through these, you may be partakers of the divine nature. The greatest of all the promises is God says, I'm going to put my nature in you. You can be a partaker of the character of God that's growing in you like a seed that's planted there. When you're born again, you have the seed of God, and it grows. Now, what could possibly be better than that? But that's that's where all this stuff is accessed, that through these, you can be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And and again, I'm, I'm... preaching to the choir in some ways you guys know you live in this world you see what's out there so much of what's done in the world all of the corruption is because people have lusts desires unhealthy desires there are good lusts itself is not a negative word we we have a negative connotation lust just means a strong and passionate desire for something you can have a strong and passionate desire for what's good and you should and that's what peter says next But you can have a strong and passionate desire for something that is off limits, not good. And that's why the world we live in is so corrupt. What are the things that people lust after? Money, power, sexual fulfillment. You know, young girls in here, beware of young guys that try to make you do things you don't want to do because of their, their corrupt, they can be corrupt through the lusts in their life. They don't care about you. 
They care about themselves. If a young man is worthy for you to date, he will respect you in every way, physical and emotional. And don't settle for anything less. And I, and I will apologize to the women in here because I know and you know that throughout the history of our world, the things that men have done to women to fulfill their sexual desires are unthinkable. And this is when Peter says, look, and, and this, is what, this is the tools that the false teachers are using to try to allure these people in the church to say, well, you know, as long as it's consensual, you're saved by grace. Whatever you do doesn't really matter. God will forgive you. And God does forgive. We'll get to that as we go on. But these are things to be escaped, run from, flee. Like Joseph did, he fled from the immorality. These are things, he says, you've escaped those things. You've escaped that corruption. You don't think like that anymore, but you've escaped it. The corruption that's in the world through lust. And then he goes on to say, let me say this before before I start again. And some people will call that liberty. Some people will call, well, we're free to do this. And, and oftentimes, we, uh, people and Christians can fall into that trap. We're living in those days right now, folks, aren't we, where we're calling what's been well known to be bad, now we're calling it good and positive. And, and they'll call it, well, liberty, but it's not really liberty. The greatest freedom, the greatest freedom is the freedom to give up things. I don't need that. I don't have to do that. I don't, I'm, I'm not dependent on that. I'm truly free. And I'm free to serve the Lord because I don't need that junk. I don't have those hang-ups. I'm not addicted to those things. Then I'm really free. But also, verse 5 says, For this very reason, because all these things are true, for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith. And we'll stop right there. And we'll, we'll, there's a list here Peter gives us of, of virtues, a, a, sort of a ladder of, of climbing uh, through these, these characteristics. But I love this. Peter says, you know, for this, because these things are true, it's like you've been given a plot of land. Everybody, everybody in this room has been given a measure of grace, gift of God. And some have been given more, some have been given less. But we all have been given something according to the sovereignty and the power and the love of God. The question is not, well, well, how come he got more than I did? How come this guy gets this ministry and I only got this ministry? How come he's like this and I'm like that? The question isn't comparing yourself to others. The question is, what are you doing with the plot you've been given? Instead of standing on your empty, barren piece of ground and pointing at other people and, and criticizing them, when we go to, when we've been to Ukraine a number of times in the past, and these people, Ukrainian people, are amazingly productive and agricultural. I mean, we got 22 acres. Our, our, we, live, we have a little farm on 22 acres, and, and some of that's, a lot of that's in woods, but we've got a garden, and I am a terrible gardener. I got like, a, you know, this big, great big garden, and in there is full of weeds. I can grow a weed. You know, how do you, do you... Well, now, wait a second. To the pure, all things are pure. <laughs> we can edit that, right, Phil? <laughs> a flower is the, th- I learned this from my wife, a flower is the thing you work really hard to grow and it dies and a, and a weed is the thing you mow down and it keeps growing. That's how I tell the difference in my yard. I don't even know where I was now. You guys distracted me. <laughs> but when we go to Ukraine, you see the folks have these little houses and these little tiny yards, and you just can't even see. There's no grass. They think we're silly for growing. Now there I'm going to go again, right? <laughs> for mowing lawn. Thank you. Thank you. Because they're so, their, their ground is so fertile and they grow beautiful flowers and, be- and all kinds of vegetables. And they're making more with their little plot than I am with, with a much bigger plot. And that's how life is. That's how the Christian life is. And that's why Peter is saying to you, 
Be diligent because you've been given these things. Don't take it lightly. Don't get into the good enough mentality. See, you're being saved. It says add to your faith. Your faith is where you start. That's the foundation. The question is, what are you putting on top of that? How are you building on that? I was amazed. Uh, Brian Atkins last night had his Eagle Scout. He became an Eagle Scout yesterday. And uh, we had the, yep. Had the celebration here. And there was this young guy. And, you know, they have those, those things that they wear over their, their shoulder. And it's got all the badges on it. And this guy behind me, sitting, sitting behind me, you know, he's probably 16, 17, 18 years old. And this guy was covered in badges. I thought, man, you're the kind of overachiever I used to despise when I was in school. You make all the rest of us look bad. Because he just kept adding to, you know, he became a Boy Scout. It's like when you get the uniform, it's like, ha, I've arrived. I got the uniform. No, that's when you start. And he just kept adding. I mean, he was covered. The guy was covered in all these badges. And he just kept adding to his Boy Scout life, this and that and the other thing. And Peter is, is, is telling those believers the sure way to not fall back is to keep pressing forward. And that is so true in life. If I could give, if you can walk away from here with one thing. When someone asks you uh, later today, what was the sermon about? You can remember chocolate milk. And you can remember the sure way to not fall back is to keep pressing forward. If you keep adding to your faith, if you keep adding to your faith, you won't fall backwards. And that's what he says, that, that be diligent. And he says, and the word to add, in the Greek is an imperative. It means start adding. This is important. This is urgent. There's a sense of urgency about that. You must begin adding to your faith. You have to be growing. Add to your faith virtue. Now, I had to write these definitions down because my memory is not that great. Virtue is not the way we define virtue. Uh, you would better define this word courage or value, valor. It's the most articulated value in Greek culture. And you could also say it's moral excellence or goodness of action. It's being the best you can be and making your life reach its highest potential. As I said, this plot of land. So the question is, Christian, what are you doing with your Christian life? Have you just settled and said, well, it's good enough to show up for church? Then you will never know the depths of the riches of the love and the gifts of God. You'll just, you'll, you'll just settle for a, a substandard Christian life. And you'll wonder, you'll say, well, I tried Christianity. It didn't work for me. That's like people that go to the gym. They figure once they got their membership, that's good enough. I got a membership to the gym. I went once. I tried it. It didn't work for me, so I stopped. Are you kidding me? I mean, add to your scrawny little frame muscle. Add endurance. But you've got to work through those things, right? You can't give up. You've got to keep going even when it's hard. I mean, those of you that have been athletes, you know this. You can't, you know, when you join the soccer team, you get your uniform, and that's when it starts. Then you've got to learn how to pass the ball. Then you've got to learn how to kick the ball. Then you've got to learn how to do this, and you've got to learn how to do that. And then there's patterns, and then there's all of these different things you add. The next thing he says, to building on that faith, you've got to start there. If you don't have that, you can't even get in the game. You've got to believe. If you don't, this morning, if you're here and you're not a believer, then you can go back to sleep because the rest of this won't apply. You can't even begin to go. Your first place is today when we end the service, you've got to come down here and you've got to say, I want to give my life to Christ. I want to have the divine nature. I want to, part- I want to have those promises that, that God has, has given. I want to escape the lust and the corruption of this world. That's where you start. Virtue, this may, I want to make the best. This has got to be your attitude. I want to make the best of my Christian life. I want to give God the most glory possible for a human being to give him. Bach, the composer and musician Bach, before beginning to compose, would write JJ on his, on his music sheet, which means, help me, Jesus. And at the end, he would write, to God alone, all glory. And he would tell his students that they would never become great musicians unless they committed their lives to Jesus Christ. That's Bach. Add to your moral excellence knowledge. So you've got to keep growing. That's what Bible studies are for. I've got to learn more. I want to keep growing in my knowledge. I want to keep learning. 
and to knowledge, self-control. Love that one. That is literally to be able to get a grip on yourself. That's what it literally means, to get a grip on yourself. It's self-mastery. And it's really not self-mastery because if you could have mastered yourself, you'd have done that. What it is is the Spirit's mastery over me. It's, it's, It's having a new master. I needed Christ to master me. I couldn't master myself. And, and this, again, Peter's addressing these very specific things because what were the false teachers saying? Hey, if it feels good, do it. And Peter's saying, no, no, no. There's a place in your life to say no. Just because you desire something doesn't mean you should have it. Doesn't mean it's good. And boy, is this a message for our current age, right? There's so, I mean, I, I'm just hearing pastor after pastor after pastor fall due to adultery and moral issues and i think at what point i'm scared to let up in my christian life it's like riding a bicycle uphill the minute you stop mid-hill and think i'll just hang out you're never going to be stagnant you're either always going up because you're pedaling i'm going up the minute you stop where do you go you go down i'm afraid to let up on my christian pursuit I want to go after God with everything I got because I'm afraid of what would happen to me if I stopped. Because I know what I used to be. And I don't want to be that again. I escaped that. So I want to add knowledge. I want to add self-control. I want to see my life be a life of, of temperance, of evenness, of mastery. And to self-control, perseverance. That's to bear up under a load. And I want to I see, uh, see uh, Peter wants to see you and I and them live lives where you turn a crisis into an opportunity. That's what perseverance is. Someone who's willing to dig in and get tough when the times are hard. To perseverance, godliness. That's a, a person who is godly is a person who has a right relationship with God and therefore they have a right, right relationship with people around them. It's a, it's a piety, it's a devotion that has practical implications. And to godliness, brotherly kindness. That's the word Philadelphia. Uh, a Christian life doesn't separate you from people. It draws you to them. The, the highest goal for your life isn't to be happy. It's to love your neighbor. And you can't love your neighbor if you can't get near your neighbor. So again, climbing this ladder of virtue, one of the things we come to is this place where it's not about, look, as long as I'm happy and I'm okay, just stay out of my life, I'll stay out of yours. You've got to find people. Listen, you've got to find hard-to-love people to love. That's what you need in your life. The very people you think you want to get away from, they're the very people God's calling you to love. That's brotherly kindness. It's, it's practical things I do for people in my life to demonstrate love to them. Philadelphia, brotherly love. And, and on top of that, then, he says brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love, which is agape, which is that unconditional love of God that's not just for those in the church, it's for those outside the church. It's for those whom, with whom you disagree, it's for those who you don't like, it's for those who you can't get along with. And if there's no other love you can have for them, you can have the love of God for them, the same love that God had for you when he saved your sorry soul from the stuff you were involved in. So adding these, I love that. I love that. Just, man, what a call, what a call for this day and age, isn't it? When so many are just living uh, substandard lives and everything else, you're adding to your portfolio and you're adding to this and you're adding to your customer list, you're adding to your clientele. And God says, what about our relationship? Let's work on that, add these things. Oh, man, it's time to stop. All right, we'll stop there. Uh, there's so much more. Because what we get to see, what we'll see next week is the result in verse 8. Ah, well, I'll tell you what. Don't, don't close up. I, you just closed up. I know, I'm sorry. But while the praise team comes up, I just need to go one sentence further. And then we'll pick up uh, in chapter, in, in verse 8 next week, and we'll continue on from there. But look at the result. For if these things are yours and abound... You will neither be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the benefit. Because there's so many people that are unfruitful. Barrenness speaks of, of pregnancy, of giving birth. And when you're pursuing the Lord this way, 
Stuff happens in your life. You give birth to things. Ministries, ideas, loving things. Your life is fruitful. Now, so you're going to, we're going to close in a minute here. And, uh, but I want you to ask yourself these questions, and we'll pick back up here and go forward next week. Is my life in Christ fruitful? I'm not going to define it. I'm just going to leave it an open-ended question for you. Is my life in Christ fruitful? And is my life in Christ bearing, uh, giving birth to things? Just ask yourself that. Think on that for this week. Take time to read ahead the rest of the book. It's short. And uh, I want to invite you guys to stand up. And as is our practice, uh, we have the prayer room open at the end of service when we close. If you have any needs whatsoever, the people back there are willing to pray with you. If you want to give your life to Christ, then I want to invite you either right now to come forward or after the service if you're too shy then you can just come to the prayer room afterwards i did have uh is is chuck here where's chuck can you would you mind coming forward or no or chuck you coming up here come on up buddy bring bring your daughter with you can you guys come on down around the steps Sometimes it takes the courage of one person to give other people courage. And this last week, uh, Chuck became a child of God. And this is his... Look at all those people. This is his daughter, Melissa. And I don't know, I told Chuck I wouldn't embarrass him. But is there anything you want to say or no? No, okay. Okay, all right. But he did, he did say that he would be glad to come up here and stand uh, in front of you because we realized that his daughter would not, never be shy to call this guy dad, right? Because you love him. Yes. And so she's coming to say, hey, I'm not shy to stand with this guy because I love him and I believe him and I trust him and, and I'm his child. And so Chuck and I talked about that, that, when, that the same way he's coming to say, I'm not shy about standing before you all and saying, God is my father, and I'm one of his children. So if anybody wants to join Chuck up here, and, and then during the last song, you can just come on up here. Or just come on around to the steps. Amen?